Welcome uh, to tonight's lecture. I'm Anne Phillips from the Gender Institute and Government Department, and I'm uh, delighted to be chairing this uh, centennial lecture by Professor Mary Evans. Uh, the um, LSE, uh, when it was celebrating its first 100 years of existence, and uh, to my shame, I can't remember which year that was, uh, created a number of uh, centennial uh, chairs which are held by distinguished academics from around the world who uh, come and sort of contribute to the work of the school for periods of r roughly three years. And Mary Evans is uh, one of the uh, centennial professors at LSE at the moment, attached to the uh, Gender Institute, where she has also uh, had a period as a visiting fellow. Um, so this is, this is uh, one of the centennial lectures uh, in that program. Um, Mary is, um, well, as well as being a, a very highly valued colleague, she's uh, one of the uh, leading figures in the world of uh, gender studies. Um, she's written um, or edited a number of the kind of the major works in the field. Uh, she was, in fact, the, the first person ever to be appointed to a chair in women's studies in the UK in 1990. When was it? 92? No, sorry, yes, apologies for that. Apologies for stressing that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and was a, a pivotal person in the, uh, the women's studies program which developed at the University of Kent, which is where she was become, before coming to LSE. Um, her work, um, I think like that of many of the faculty at the Gender Institute, uh, crosses over social science and uh, humanities work. So uh, as well as her um, more sociological work, she's written very extensively on issues of narrative fiction uh, and autobiography. Um, but I guess one of the, th the, the themes that kind of unite the, her very diverse work are uh, her interest in themes of, of gender and class and the ways in which... Um, the ways in which we imagine relationships of class, the ways in which uh, uh, those perceptions of class are gendered, and how these inform the politics of inequality. And I, uh, I, I take it from the title of her lecture today uh, that these are some of the themes that will be developed uh, this evening. Uh, so she's talking on the topic of gender, words, and power, meanings of inequality, uh, at a time of neoliberalism. And I'd just like you to join with me in welcoming uh, Mary Evans to give this centennial lecture. Um, thank you very much, Anne, for that introduction. And thank you all as well for coming this evening. And I'm de delighted to be here. Um, I want to start by saying that in the outline which I produced for this lecture several months ago, I spoke of intending to discuss gendered forms of inequality and possible new forms of political engagement to challenge those inequalities. Since I wrote these words, political events in this country have suggested that not only will various forms of inequalities between men and women become more considerable in the future, but so too will other forms of inequality, notably of class and race. Those voices who have in the past five years argued that class divisions in this country are becoming ever greater have not become more optimistic, neither have they become marginalized. On the contrary, that case has been joined by others and amongst those others, the Women Against the Cuts campaign has been launched 
and the Fawcett Society has initiated a legal challenge to those government policies that arguably entrench and increase gender inequality. Prior to the last general election, the Fawcett Society organized a meeting here at the LSC where women politicians from all three major political parties voiced their commitment to the cause of gender inequality. Uh, to the cause of gender <laughs> equality. I do very much apologize to all those people <laughs> who spoke on that occasion. However, the, the apology, as you will see in a moment, is somewhat muted. Sadly, as with much else that happens in the course of general elections, at least some of this talk would seem to have been make-believe. But I use that term advisedly because it is through the introduction of the fictional that I want to explore in the context of what seemed to me to be the harsh yet very finely judged and highly instrumental political choices of the present government, both the part that gender plays in the present social order and other less well-defined ways in which fictional constructions and relationships of gender might be of use in the discussion of dissent. Dissent against the policies of both the present British government and other more oppressive and authoritarian regimes. I do not, of course, rule out the possibility here that constructions of gender can also help to maintain those regimes. But what I want to do this evening is to speculate about the ways in which that literature which we name as fictional can provide for us ways of subverting, resisting, changing, and illuminating the supposedly non-fictional, a concept in the realm of the political that I would regard as highly problematic, and a concept which other political theorists, from Plato to Marx, have recognized as an inadequate account of the political realm. Marx and Engels identified, for example, in the very first line of the Communist Manifesto, the links between politics and the imagination when they wrote that a spectre is haunting Europe the spectre of communism against this spectre they noticed a holy alliance had been organized now whether or not we concur that this same spectre has the same presence in the politics of the 21st century what we might take from the sentence is the recognition of the fear of the oppositional of different politics that informs that sentence. As Marx and Engels continue on the same page, it is time to publish the views of communists to counter what they describe as the nursery tale about communism. In three short paragraphs, the politics of the real world are brought together with fantasies and fears, the tales and the spectres about the politics of the imagination. The spectral fears and the imagination of different political realities that I want to discuss today are not those of communism. My concern are those trans-historical fears about the loss of securely gendered boundaries of entitlement and autonomy, fears that continue to haunt and indeed to provoke holy alliances. In speculating about the possible impact of spectres of gender, I want to use these excursions, which is what they will be, into the fictional and the supernatural in order to investigate ways in which our fictional constructions of gender might allow us to interrupt further gendered inequality. 
as well perhaps as enlarging those debates about gender and the idea of the modern that have been raised elsewhere. In doing this, I shall cut across disciplinary boundaries, boundaries that sometimes separate the social sciences and the humanities, suggesting that these disciplines might be brought together both through the concept of the text and through that long-established practice used in various ways across this political spectrum of invoking the individual to illustrate the collective. These individuals need not necessarily be fictional, although they will be here. Marx, for example, used the real-life account of the death of a young seamstress through overwork to dramatize his account of the conditions of labor, which he went on to discuss in volume one of Capital. So let me very quickly then first summarize those aspects of gender inequality in Britain in 2011, which are very, very far from the fictional. Material rewards are generally fewer for women than for men. Women are more likely to suffer various forms of often unchallenged physical violence. Women are more likely to assume the care of the variously frail, and women are more vulnerable to the demands of the various forms of the sex trade. These broad sweeps across the social landscape by, are, I recognize, all complex areas of social life, and all are differenti differentiated by individual experience and by individual location and identities of class and race. But a consensus of voices has pointed out there remains a considerable degree of real certainty about female disadvantage, a disadvantage that has become transparently apparent with proposed cuts in state spending. The state for many women is not the oppressive institution of the conservative imagination, but the means through which women are provided with material and even occasionally, or now increasingly less occasionally, legal resources. But it is that state, an audit by the House of Commons recently showed, which is now placing three quarters of the cuts burden on the shoulders of women. My reference above to the state of the conservative imagination, I mean not in the sense of a progress report, but a specific attitude to a specific institution. And it takes me rapidly to that excursion into what I have described as the supernatural, into the place of our collective fantasies and fears about gender and the part that these play in maintaining not just inequalities of gender, but other oppressive forms of inequality. In this, in this discussion, I want to outline what I see as the imagined chains of gender, not just the chains that bind, but the more complex ways in which agency is gendered. Before I introduce the characters through whom I want to explore those issues, I would also like to make two further points about the state and gendered inequality in Britain in 2011. The first is that the recent cuts in government spending have, it seemed to me, introduced a new political geography to social inequality and gendered inequality in particular. With great precision, government cuts in grants to local authorities have been greater both in areas of existing disadvantage and consistent labor voting. I would argue that this is a form of social kettling, and it may have the effect of locking women in those areas 
more reliant as they are on various forms of state support, even more closely into deprivation. In many of those areas, talk of the recession and with it the implicit assumption that there have been non-recessionary times has a very hollow ring. As one of the informants said in a recent study conducted by Nick Emmel and Karin Hughes, the recession, it's all the same to us. That comment suggests to us another form of the interpretation of the remark, recession, what recession? It is not that prosperity is remarkable for its continuing presence, but for its continuing absence. The second point concerns what I would regard as the relentlessly sentimental and static view of the family that is often communicated in political discussions, a view that refuses to recognize everything that has been said in the past 200 years to suggest that the family and relationships within it is a dynamic and not a given state and moreover, a dynamic that is closely related to, and not independent of, relations of the market. Both these political realities are such that they demand, as many organizations and individuals have recognized, opposition. And so to do that, or, perhaps certain, or to perhaps and hopefully further that, I want to introduce instances that suggest ways in which women have asserted an individual will but also a will that has a collective resonance and importance. In doing this, I'm very much aware of the dangers of bringing together an entire political economy with instances in fiction. Much of it is which is apparently distant from the 21st century of today. But my emphasis on the agency of women in fiction is to bring to a foreground a tradition in the novel in which women do not die miserable deaths and they are not sacrificed on the altar of the conventional order. It is also, and I would emphasize this, the, to validate the importance of the imagined, not just because it tells us in individualized terms of what is, but also it tells us about what could be. In the autobiographical writing of many feminists, there is a persistent reference to the inspirations of fiction. Many of the same characters appear over and over again, recognized in, as indicative of what is aspired to, of what women could achieve. I do not wish to defend here a sense of the ownership of any particular work of the imagination. Interpretation and the text should belong to everyone. But I do wish to argue for an interpretation of the agency of women, which does not secure within a conservative and an individualizing tradition. So now, to introduce those five individual women through whom I want to explore the questions of female agency and resistance, the representation of the female will and tensions about the female body and agency. Although all these women are creatures of fiction, in no case are they irretrievably divorced from various aspects of actual human experience. Not all of my characters are positive, and nor do they all represent the embodiment of independent agency. My five individuals are these. If this was a stage, this, this would be the point at which I would ask them to come and join us. And the five people are Jane Eyre, Mrs. Fairfax, characters both in Charlotte Bronte's novel Jane Eyre, 
The others are Fanny Price and Mary Crawford, respectively the heroine and the anti-heroine of Jane Austen's novel Mansfield Park. And a final character, a more recent and perhaps more familiar example, Lisbeth Salander of Stieg Larsson's The Millennium Trilogy. It's probably, <laughs> it is, I'm sure, um, uh, to many people astounding to put Fanny Price and Lisbeth Salander together in one sentence, but that is actually what I'm going to do here, or at least in one discussion. So let me take, first of all, the example of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, a much-filmed, much-read novel which has been widely discussed, widely interpreted. Jane Eyre is the orphaned governess who almost becomes the bride of the wealthy Mr. Rochester, a man for whom the course of true love does not rule out the possibilities of bigamy. At the time of his first attempt to marry Jane, Mr. Rochester is married to that other heroine in the novel, the iconic mad woman in the attic, the personification of those female furies of legend. But what I want to take from Bronte's novel, and indeed, in turn, the other works, are the ways in which this particular lit literary imagination can first both endorse and then also refuse female knowledge, and also at the same time provide for us a way of rethinking that vexed question of the relationship of the modern to gender. The latter question of how the modern both allows and refuses female knowledge and understanding of the world is, it seems to me, very well demonstrated in Jane Eyre. And it is demonstrated, I think, particularly through one of the characters, the housekeeper, Mrs. Fairfax. And Mrs. Fairfax, I would argue, epitomizes a great deal of that now familiar person, of the silent, non-speaking subaltern, the person who epitomizes the absence of women's voices in any number of institutional contexts. What we have to note is the absence of curiosity by Mrs. Fairfax about the unhappy woman in the attic. Mrs. Fairfax, we are asked to believe, is happy with the explanation that the woman up there is a noisy servant, even though the noise which occasionally comes from that top floor we might assume to be beyond the conventional. This is all the more remarkable, I would suggest, because Mrs. Fairfax is a very competent housekeeper, a woman who, the, who we can trust to know the place of every item, human and otherwise, in her domestic kingdom. Yet somehow she dismisses the disturbances that regularly echo throughout the house. We meet in Mrs. Fairfax a woman apparently entrenched in the refusal of knowledge. And this allows us to speculate about that imagination of Charlotte Bronte and more generally 19th century Britain that seem to assume that the two factors of gender and class would embody in female servants a group of people with an absence of curiosity, not just bordering on the pathological, but fully immersed in it. This imagined hierarchy of imagination, or lack of it, classed and gendered as it is, seems to me to have been woven into the very narrative of neoliberalism and woven through a long tradition of the deliberate domestication of the political economy that reached its pinnacle in absent aspects of the ideology of Thatcherism. In order to produce a degree of resonance between a political agenda and everyday reality, 
the nation became a place of potentially well-ordered housekeeping, in which the recognition of the dangerous and the disruptive, essentially, I think, the implications of the needs of the dynamic of capitalism and the political fury that these needs might generate, was actually locked up in the attic. It was noisy, but it was securely secured in that particular place. Mrs. Fairfax, in her subsequent embodiment as Margaret Thatcher, and later the determinedly domesticated David Cameron, provided a model of the way in which gendered domestic skills could apparently be personified in political leaders who would then provide an ordered household. The skills are crucial to the order of that household, but so too is the expectation that those with the skills will not ask too many questions about the household, be it nation or wealthy home. We have only to turn to the account of the firm as a family in the internal organization of the Walmart group in the United States to see this version of both silencing and domesticating at work. And that example is a particularly clear one, but there are other instances where fictional communities of family and people are used to disguise the absence or the marginalizing of democratic rights. This gender gendering of both the national economy and many of its constituent industries has four powerful consequences. It reduces critique of alternative arrangements of the political economy as a tax on the stable household. It continues that pattern in popular explanations of capitalism in which national budgets are always matters of getting and spending, but never of relations, but never of, relations of capital and labor. And it secures and confirms, through the homology of the personal domestic world with that of the state, the quiescent Mrs. Fairfaxes of neoliberalism and the gendered common sense of domestic order. But perhaps most important, the domestication of the public world through the deliberate use of images and spectres related to the experience of women contains in itself and for itself any autonomous definitions and challenges that women might make. It is a form of recognition of the female, but it's a form that benefits the most privileged. Political invocations about the ordinary person and ordinary families recall, I think, all too well that Victorian Anglican hymn that told us that the common round, the daily task, should furnish all we ought to ask. The subtext of this hymn, as is the case for domesticating political ideologies, is that someone else will perform the daily tasks and that these tasks should be the limit of our aspirations. Yet at the same time as Charlotte Bronte presents to us the embodiment in Mrs. Fairfax of the absence of female imagination, she also allows us in Jane Eyre, the person from whom, in the first place, knowledge is knowingly withheld. A woman who can overthrow Mr. Rochester's flawed domestic regime and challenge assumptions about power and ignorance. She does so by uniting two spectacular and sensational acts the defiance of Rochester and the flight from Thornfield, with the ability to create a viable and independent existence. In this, she shows the possibilities of using major traditions of, of moder modernity to her own advantage. 
the social appetite for sensation that has existed since the 18th century, together with the gradual enlargement of the possible autonomy of women. But just as important, we should notice that in becoming a sensational subject, Jane rejects that other tradition of the modern, the sentimental, a tradition evoked by Rochester's, Rochester's pleas that love conquers all, a, a tradition that Jane rejects in favor of the assertion of her conscious knowing will and the rejection of the subjective. A similarly apparently ordered home is overthrown by our third character, Fanny Price of Austin's Mansfield Park. Penniless like Jane Eyre, Fanny Price is virtually instructed to marry a rich suitor, a man of whom she is deeply suspicious. Her rich uncle berates her as foolish and crucially as modern. And in doing so, he establishes the use of that word, um, which has continued to this day. The idea of the modern, particularly the case of aspects of the modern that women might claim, as a threat to everything that is known and ordered. We should note here the recognition in 1814 of the nascent agendas of the Daily Mail. Even in a world in which this same uncle is engaged in questions about the more profitable exploitation of his sugar plantations, an entirely modern exercise in the maximization of profit, the modern, when personified by women, is invoked as a threat to social order. Thus Austin creates in Sir Thomas Bertram a definitive neoliberal actor, the man who sees only disorder in the self-assertion of the powerless, whilst he allows himself full access to the disruption for profit of forms of social order outside his own. Fanny Price is punished for her refusal of the unwanted marriage by exile to poverty. Self-assertion by women for both Fanny and Jane comes, at least initially, at a high price. What these women also share, besides that physically unprepossessing appearance that allows them a degree of independence from the male gaze, is a refusal to perform that sociability and amiability of which Austen was to become so critical in her later novel, Emma, and which is so manifestly apparent in our fourth character, Mary Crawford, in Mansfield Park. Transposed to the 21st century, Jane and Fanny resist that neoliberal expectation of the positive attitude, the perfect corporate employee, always willing to smile at processes that may be directed towards insecurity and injustice. Neither of these characters accept the imperative that we must praise the powerful or the apparently socially desirable. Whilst Mary Crawford enthusiastically embraces the possibilities of codes of manners and convention for her own ends, Fanny and Jane refuse this collusive ontological space, both locating themselves within moral frameworks which allow a truly sensational difference from the social. It is therefore surely partial to read Austen as critics from Marilyn Butler to Edward Said have done and across the political spectrum as the great organizer of bourgeois desire and order. These interpretations of her work, I would suggest, show us the limitations of readings of the imagination 
that are bound by that version of realism which can only see the facts and not the dynamic of the fictional. In resisting the slavery of a forced marriage for herself, Fanny Price asserts not just opposition to the state of slavery, but to the violence and the coercion that underpins it. At the conclusions to both Jane Eyre and Mansfield Park, Jane and Fanny are, as readers will know, firmly placed back in a reconstituted domestic space. <coughs> Reader, I married him, may not appeal to everyone. No such conventional conclusion is available to Lisbeth Salander, and the state which she has had to confront is not that of a flawed household, but of a nation state, a state that has become incapable of the protection of the vulnerable. But I want to make three observations about these various tales that I have told. First, the way in which the sensational resistance of Fanny Price and Jane Eyre stretches across centuries to the equally fictional resistance of Lisbeth Salander in the Millennium Trilogy. All apparently powerless young women, and we might note in all cases without, without present or effective parents, challenge those orthodoxies which are set on their real or their metaphorical imprisonment. They do so within the parameters of their own contexts, but they do so with a fury and a determination that suggests that they need a more collective recognition than that of the isolated heroine. From the 18th century onwards, I would argue that one of the spectres that has haunted much of the world is the possibility of female autonomy. Not just the quasi-autonomy of martyrdom or stardom, but the exercise of independent, often inconvenient judgment and existence that is apparent in Fanny and Jane. In those months of their lives when they are removed, either forcibly or by choice, from their homes, Fanny and Jane do not die, but they establish for themselves ways of living that produce gain for others. Fanny Price has been identified elsewhere as the true embodiment of the Enlightenment, in that she speaks not just with reason, but for human equality. She defies the view that her material inequality should make her more subject to the powerful than wealthier others. The second point that I would make here is that the ordered households of fiction, whether they are households of political fiction or fiction in the novel, is that many ordered households are authoritarian and hierarchical. The domestic may be a crucial personal resource, but is all, it is all too often a place of gendered inequality and that deep silence about social and individual relationships that is personified by Mrs. Fairfax. Thirdly, and finally to note, as many others have done, that the ties that bind are often ties of gendered coercion. In proposing these observations, to which I will return in just a moment, I also want to suggest ways of relating fictional acts by fictional heroines to the politics of the 21st century. And so, what do I want to take to the politics of the 21st century from the fictional stories that I have outlined. The first is that I want to challenge readings of both fiction and the real world that assume distance between the past and the present. Jane Austen, for example, is often read as the patron saint of the English gentry, 
but her concerns with material inequality and the powerlessness of women are as real today as they were in the early 19th century. One of the central deceits of neoliberalism is that in its account of the past is included a refusal of the continuities of inequality between past and present. It is the same form of absolute fiction that allows wealthy white men to become ordinary blokes and for the term middle class to become as, a, as applicable to those educated as Eton as those living on the average national wage. A wage which we might note that would not even pay a year of the fees at a public school. The second point, the order of the households, concerns the way in which the order or perceived disorder of individual lives is of lasting political note. Broken Britain is part of that spectral view of the social order which can only perceive individual deviance, violence and disruption, and never the disruptive possibilities of the state. That same account of Broken Britain, instantly recognisable in conservative accounts of the nation that invoke a golden past of, past of stability, is also to be found, of course, in various parts of popular culture. Beverly Skeggs is amongst those who have identified the demonisation of white working-class women. But demonisation, we should also remember, is not necessarily only of working-class women. The recent film Red Road, directed by Andrea Arnold, gave a view of the loss to a white, lower-middle-class woman of the personal incompetence and carelessness of a white, working-class man. The film is in many ways a sensitive account of the ways in which a woman is coming to terms with the death of a child. But I would also suggest that it's problematic in the ways in which it suggests, suggests gendered connections between poverty and irresponsibility, between apparently chaotic ways of life and their potential for damage to others. The person who does the damage in the film is a working class man. The person damaged is a lower middle class woman. The dynamic of damage and damaging here is a complex bringing together of narratives about the terrible consequences to women of acts of male violence with another narrative, arguably that of the threat across decades of history of the damaging working class man. But the new spectres that haunt, and indeed are encouraged to haunt, the general imagination are not just creations of the mass media or of conservative politics. Across the political spectrum, the past decade has seen the publication of works about cultures of fear, problems of affluence, and new forms of liquid love. In all these works, new forms of culture are assumed to have taken on a stranglehold on the public, and they compel us variously to imprison our children indoors, or to become obese, or to reject lasting relationships. Nor are the various recent publications the first of their kind. From the 1920s onwards, sociologists in particular have published crisis narratives of one kind or another. And many, although happily not all, have questioned the transformation of what they perceive as traditional gender relations. Now, it may very well be that aspects of the phenomenon which these crisis narratives are talking about are apparent, 
But the collective political <laughs> position embraced here, I would suggest, is that of constructing a crisis in order to maintain fictions of the past. The crisis becomes a general threat, and the texts articulate the possibly sensational, but they, but they do not articulate the sensational act. That line, I would argue, is crucial because capitalism has a long history of tolerating, if not act actively seeking, critique. The bohemian, the avant-garde, new forms of culture, be they of youth or different ethnic groups, have often been welcomed rather than not. As too, we might argue, have been those redemptive narratives within capitalism, narratives at the same time of genuine improvement, but also of a relationship to the prolonged longevity of the capitalist state. We might, in fact, see these variously critical forms as the electricity that Frankenstein used to bring his monster to life. Without this energy, the corpse would never live. But whilst capitalism also encourages critique, its manifest problem has become the articulation of a moral system. Witness the various attempts to do God in various manifestations. Those dramatic accounts of the social world what I have described as crisis accounts, have, I would suggest, a close but contra contradictory relationship to that void in that they want us, in many cases, to return to the fictional past whilst at the same time invoking a view of the modern that is often politically positioned to, to condemn in others who are either literal or metaphorical outsiders the absence of the modern. Women occupy a central position in this contradiction, as much condemned for embracing the modern as for its refusal. For example, the white Western female body is a form through which boundaries are policed and maintained, but boundaries that in themselves are the product of those forms of politics often hostile to the interests of women. The dual relationship of women to the modern as both a site of conservative tradition and that of emblematic modernization does not, in either case, necessarily involve free choices by women. Yet the choices made by Jane and Fanny also, I think, illustrate the possibilities of resolving that 21st debate about religion and critique. The problem, as posed by Talal Assad, as is critique secular? Fanny and Jane frame their resistance to various forms of conservative coercion in secular argument. They do not draw on religious argument in order to maintain their positions. And they make the claims that they make for themselves through references to the secular. Jane, for example, when asked by a particularly uncharitable clergyman how she must avoid going to hell, says with a, a vibrant self-assertion, I must stay well and not die. <laughs> and in doing this, she is, of course, claiming a space in that argument um, for secular and indeed uh, material uh, debates. So the assumption that the past was morally superior because it did religion is just a part of that stranglehold of the past in the texts of miserabilism that I have mentioned. As important is the difference between these crisis texts and the sensational acts of Fanny Price, Jane Eyre, and Elizabeth Salander. 
And that difference, I would suggest, lies crucially in the distinct motivations of the acts. The wish to sensationalize social life, which is what I think writers of crisis narratives do, and the wish to resist and articulate dissent, in the case of Jane, Fanny, and Lisbeth. The latter group, all in their different ways, embodiments of the capacities and possibilities of the human will, have no wish to be sensational, and they do not belong to traditions of the various forms of terrorism, be it military or intellectual, that wish to coerce arguments, and in certain cases make women what we might describe as the human shield of military and political interventions. Those fictional characters that I have mentioned are sensational because in their various acts of resistance they threaten to disrupt a normative order. An order that says, without much variation between the 19th and the 21st century, that women should accept the views, the sentimental pleas, the descent into realism, and the convenient that is proposed. Those observations that I made about Jane, Fanny, and Elizabeth were that all three embodied independent female judgment and the refusal of maintaining the apparent needs of domestic and social order and its accompanying coercion. The relationship between these acts and the politics of the 21st century is then my final theme. And in this context, I want to suggest that there are two ways in which individual imagined characters, characters sometimes worlds away from us, can offer to us certain suggestions about contemporary politics. The first is that in the case of Fanny, Jane and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, the female body becomes a body fully owned by its user. It is not a body to be deceived or forced into marriage or unchosen heterosexual relations. The possibilities of spectacle for the other are minimized and there is a resistance again across historical time to that body-focused culture that has dominated the West since the 18th century. Now this might suggest that these characters are in some sense pure will, non-gendered players in the power politics of everyday life, resisting the continuity of the tradition of the modern market economy that has consistently used constructions of the apparently natural aspects of the physical body, both biologically male and female, for maintaining various forms of social order and social inequality. The terror induced in certain contexts by the mere possibility of anything other than heteronormativity is testament to the power of perceived needs for rigorously defined regimes of gender. But I would argue that part of the strength of Jane et al. is that they refuse to perform what is expected of women. Within the social context, within which they variously find themselves. They transcend that identity through a rejection of the offered paths of obedience and compliance. Thus I am suggesting that engagement with the political does not necessarily demand a resort to humanism, to body-less politics. One of the paradoxes left to feminism in the work of Simone de Beauvoir was a complex position in which humanism was rejected and the assertion made that the human subject is always embodied, but at the same time her discussion of the body allowed and suggested a greater transcendence over the physical body to the male rather than the female. Beauvoir's discussion of the female body and the second sex is often gothic in the terrors 
that seem to be located in the physicality of half of humanity. But we should perhaps read those passages as indicative less of an individual than of a contextual collective imagination about women. The irony being, of course, that the work of the most iconic figure in the history of feminism also articulates some of our culture's fear of the feminine. The second point that I would make here is to suggest that whilst we can read the acts of Fanny et al. as defensive and individual, there is also a very important sense in which individual acts, just as much as the tradition of precedent in English law, acknowledge that acts or judgments are representative of collective ideals and values. The telling example has been used to great effect by many social scientists from Marx to the present day. And it is one of the ways in which disciplines founded in the collective can make common cause with those enshrined in the individual. The representation of female will, and with it the possibilities of resistance and dissent, has often been dismissed as the voice of discontented privilege, a judgment that implicitly recognizes, of course, the unequal place that women have long had in the public world and the assumption that a degree of the diminution of this inequality, however partial, should be accompanied by silence. That famous double shift of women, paid and unpaid work, has, I think, another equally important form. The achievement of various forms of gender equality, but with it the continuing obligation to speak of persistent forms of inequality. And within that second double shift lies, too, the possibility of the retention of female access to the emotion of anger, an emotion as complex as any other, but with access to the articulation of fears both of loss and abjection. The anger of Jane and others embodies this anger of the reduction of the female human to the means of the achievements of the other. Perhaps more than that, the anger expressed by Jane, Fanny and Lisbeth is also born of the threat to them of the refusal of their hard-earned knowledge. In those cold Victorian schoolrooms, the unheated attic and the brutal state institution in which they all lived, they acquired through the work of understanding a sense of the possibility of agency. And so, in conclusion, I return to my fictional characters young women who disrupt and challenge the assumptive and the normative worlds in which they live. All three individuals embody female agency, an agency that I would argue is drawn from traditions and values that are not as distinct as the immediate surface differences between the characters might suggest. All three do not accept that women have to take what is given, that negotiation, dissent, refusal, is not part of the female condition. All three act as individuals, albeit in all cases with various forms of help from others. And for all three, acts of rebellion are also acts which enlarge their individual sense of agency and capacity. The dialectic between situation and action is not one in which the theoretical is established at the beginning of the act. The theoretical is established through the act in the case of the actions of these characters. And in these various ways, all three young women challenge the idea that a sense of the individual and individual rights 
only work for the individual. As all demonstrate, their individual acts have a purpose and a relevance beyond their individual circumstances. Indeed, some of the historical reactions to both Jane Eyre and Fanny Price attest to the powers of recognition of those most likely to be challenged by these young women. Jane was a problem right from the start. Fanny became a problem in the 20th century, as modern young women like Fanny seemed increasingly likely to challenge normative regimes of romance and the proper appearance and behaviour of female sexuality. Thus, I am arguing a case for the part that fictional acts of resistance might play in the making of narr narratives of gender equality. First, allowing the way in which Jane and others might help us to enlarge the gender parameters of the conventional collectivities of the modern. Amongst those collectivities, the actors of the modern, two people stand out, the citizen and the flaneur. The citizen has, with some struggle, been gendered at least in parts of the West. Whilst the flaneur, as Valerie Hay has pointed out, remains on the whole a masculine, a, presence, a masculine presence in our accounts of the modern city and its history. The imagination of the modern, from Baudelaire to Walter Benjamin to the present day, still arguably, arguably involves both an, an imagination and a reality that is deeply gendered, and demands in particular from women a greater accommodation to it than is the case for men. The second point concerns what I would describe as the mixed history of gender and the modern. In her remarkable book about the transformation of English religion and religious practice between the 16th and the 18th century, Alexandra Walsham has examined those intellectual assumptions that underpinned attitudes towards religious minorities. And most importantly here, the institutional structures and legal mechanisms by which they were both repressed and at the same time accommodated. Transposed to this discussion of gender, what we might observe is a parallel case. The extension of the public world to women, but with it a domestication of that world, such that it imprisons as much as liberates those that it admits. Both women and men in this transformation become subject to those regimes of collusion and acceptance that disallow dissent, that take as normal, realistic and essential imperatives of the continuation of inequality. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, we now have um, about, uh, about up to about half an hour for, uh, for discussion, so um, it's your opportunity to ask questions. Do, do we have travelling mics here? Yes, yeah, you've got two travelling mics. Um, so um, so if, if you could just sort of indicate if you want to ask questions and then wait till the uh, microphone comes to you. So, who wants to start? Okay, so this one just there. Yeah. As I have various views, I thought I might as well start the ball rolling. One of the problems of looking at Jane Eyre and Jane Austen and so on is that it is a different society 
although many of the points are the same. Um, and I'm concerned that the, in the changes of society, we have less distinction between um, the various classes, but a very big problem that although we now have um, a, a much more educated uh, society for women than in the past, um, the problems of women are still very much the same. For example, I was horrified to find that you didn't get a professorship until 1992. I hardly believe it. But of course, most people don't know that 97% of full-time professorships are held by men. And what I would like to see is the novels of today encouraging the women are in the pursuit of getting professorships, getting into parliament, and getting into um, the directorships of uh, the 100 top uh, companies. And I'm wondering whether the, con the contemporary novel is more of an anatine experience that you read and you think, oh, that's what you would have liked to have done, but you can't do it because society won't let you. Um, which is what I seem to find when I look at a lot of contemporary novels. There goes the woman through her problems, but she ends up with a successful marriage or successful something, but not the achievement of what is now available in contemporary society, equal education um, and the rights to a professorship, which you won't get anyway because as in the LSC, I didn't even know they had a single professor, here, woman professor here, until tonight. Uh, okay, so... Uh, so, I, I am wondering whether, in spite of the relevance of Jane Austen and Jane uh, Eyre, whether we need to look at something else in fiction. Um, I can only respond by that to, to that by saying I yes I, I think we uh, we do need to look at um, other fiction beyond what I've presented this evening, which is um, the 19th century and then of course the 21st century in the case of Lisbeth Salander. Um, but I was particularly interested in these particular acts by these particular women because it seemed to me that this really did take us to a place where we can identify something rather different than people working out various kinds of problems in their everyday lives. There is a dis disruption, a discontinuity in these narratives. And it is a discontinuity and a disruption which is made possible, uh, I think, by the, uh, uh, as I was suggesting, the, the exercise of the female will. And that's what seemed to me to be important about these particular cases. But I completely agree. Um, there's a huge case here, um, and uh, I think it's uh, uh, an important case for, for reading more and much more widely. I like what you just said about um, the act of um, the women displaying their female will. I was just reminded of something that and Wendy Brown mentioned once about neoliberalism providing direction but no meaning to everyday life. And it strikes me that, in, in a sense, the characters you're describing will preferred meaning. 
take that as a comment. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yes, yes, sorry, just me. Um, hi, I've just got a question about um, the way that you're characterising the domestic and, and the work that the domestic and the household can possibly do. And certainly your readings are, are absolutely convincing in terms of the ways in which <clears throat> the domestic and the household are spaces of constraint on women. But do you see no possibility of... Um, of challenging that kind, those kind of constraining frameworks of the domestic while still reclaiming some um, redefinition of the space of the household or the domestic as a site of female will. Because I'm thinking about those two novels, um, the Millennium Trilogy I refuse to read, so I don't know what's going on in there. But in both Jane Eyre and in Mansfield Park, I think it could be argued that part of the ways in which Jane and Fanny express their female will and resist is through insisting on or constructing other kinds of households and other kinds of domestic that do somehow slightly shift the terms of the gendered bargain, the gendered um, setup that they are being offered. So just what get your reaction to that? Mm. Um, yes, I think um, that, I mean, it's certainly true in the case of um, both those 19th century characters that the reconstituted households are differently organized. But I think, and the difference is, and I think very importantly, that uh, there is a greater there is a greater democracy in those households. That's the, that's the change that occurs. And it's that model of democracy being within the household, being brought about by female self-assertion that I think is so important. Um, the other theme of domestication that I was um, speaking about, the domestication of the political, also you know, seems to me to be a way actually where that it precisely is that a greater degree of democracy is precisely what is not happening and that's what's I think an interesting contrast between these writers in the early 19th century and Britain in 2011 that the public political version of, of the household the domestic which is being presented to us I think has a greater tendency towards the absence of democracy both in the public and the private sphere than is otherwise the case. So in that situation, you would then be looking for a space in which there could be an intervention which could challenge both that public and that private, uh, what, what, I've called, um, what I've called domestication. Does that? Okay, am I right there's one right at the back sitting on the windowsill? Did no, I misread that. Um, Yes, thank you. Oh, I forgot I had chewing gum. Oops. <laughs> I, I had a question about Will, actually, because you used um, throughout, in what I thought was an exceptionally elegant paper, that the idea of female Will quite a few times, and also talked about conscious knowing Will and the possibilities of the human Will, but not about pure Will as non-gender player. And I just, uh, it's an interesting question for me to ask. It, it really why the vocabulary of will? What, is will something that you're depositing a certain amount of political hope in? And, and what would you say about the, the gendered nature of will? Because Nietzsche famously said, didn't he, men have 
will women are willing a, a, a position we'd want to critique for sure but it, it's an interesting feminist question right now I think the, the extent to which the vocabulary of will gives us a certain kind of political potentiality yeah and it's that it's that political potential of the idea of will which I think is so important what can you do with it how can you how can it be used to to make an impact within the political because you see I think what seems to me to be so problematic is the way in which um, women are often women's political position is often that of defense or it is often equally in the history of Britain certainly in the last hundred years gaining that which men already have so it's essentially a makeup position or a position of um, defending what is being taken away I think what interests me about the possibility of different kinds of acts of will is using in will an imagination about what could be which is not to remain rooted in the realist in in what is put in front of us is what is presented as this is what is possible at this particular point in history but the idea that there could be a transcendent will which could actually move beyond the particular circumstances in which any individual is placed and that seems to me to be a real political problem but in 2011, just as much, say, as in 1911, which is, you know, uh, or 1811. I mean, these are questions of which recur, and hence my use of characters who, you know, are so far apparently distant from each other. Because, as I was saying in the paper, I do think that the, those continuities are ones which are important and which should be recognized. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask about um, your, your views on Jane Eyre and the end of Jane Eyre because, as you say, the reader I married him is kind of problematic in this. Um, and, you know, Jane from a child is a very sort of spiky character and this quote that you pointed out was one of my favourites where she says she just must not die. Um, so I'm just wondering at the end where she is more of a gentle character. Um, do you think that the agency and the will are retained when she marries him? Um, so I just wonder whether her, her power comes partly from his emasculation and his um, debilitation. Mm. And in that context, she then becomes a nursemaid and has she sort of taken on another servitude? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an absolutely... Um, uh, that's a very important part of the ending of Jane Eyre. That, um, but the, the final emasculation actually is prefigured at a much earlier place in the novel because when Jane first meets Rochester, the first thing he does on seeing her is fall off his horse, which is a quite extraordinary sort of entry into what is going to happen much later on. And I think that's actually, yes, you can read it as emasculation, but I think you can also read it as the, the sense of... The, again, the sensational of the appearance of what is not expected. And it's not just that Jane appears as an unexpected person in that particular bit of the countryside, but it's what she represents is in itself unexpected. It's, it's not part of what he is used to. I mean, the, the importance of it not being what he is used to, of course, underpins a great deal of the erotic exchange between them in the novel. So I think that's also very important. 
Another thing about the ending, which I think also needs perhaps to be emphasized, is that yes, I absolutely agree that Jane at the end is left looking after Rochester. He's, he's maimed, he's blind, he's, he's not well. But she's also wealthy, and it's not just that she's left as a nursemaid, she's also left as a person who has a material independence. And I think, again, that's a point which is, is very important in what Bronte is doing. Now, she hasn't earned that money, it's money that has been left to her through the, through the workings of inheritance. But it nevertheless suggests something about the ways in which the relationship of money to women in the modern is not just about having money, making them powerful, but it's also about how it becomes something which can transform the relationships, the intimate relationships which they have. Because Jane does not say to Rochester in those final pages, as I remember, yes, yes, it's really not, you know, I'm happy to be back, I'm going to look after you, I'm going to do everything that I possibly can for you. She continues in the mode of questioning him, um, contesting what he's saying, albeit in a gentler way than perhaps at other periods in the other, other parts of the novel. So I think there's a continuity there, but it's a continuity which you have to trace, I think, in its various dimensions. sort of struck by um, the fact that you started off with the state which you could say is kind of our inheritance like in the Victorian novel as women that it is a kind of enabling you know you said it's not been for women an oppressive state it's the welfare state has been an enabling state so you could say that's kind of like the inheritance that Jane Eyre gains <laughs> and in some way and then you shifted completely to the domestic setting mm. for your kind of disruptive mm. Mm. narratives and and interestingly, Lisbeth Salander is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, an odd choice in that sense because she is up against an oppressive state, albeit mm -hmm. in Sweden, where lots of other things are enabled. So I suppose there's a kind of, yeah, could you, you know, what sort of fiction, isn't that we need fictions which somehow are able to see the personal in relation to the state then, mm -hmm. and in relation to, okay, maybe disruptive, but also a sort of collective imagining of what, you know, which, which is not just about small acts of resistance and settling our own sort of worlds around us, mm. but then, yeah, how, I didn't see how it fitted uh, together, the kind of, mm. the cuts and the state and then the sort of individual acts of arranging your domestic mm. kind of situation. I, I don't see it. Okay, well, I think one way of seeing this perhaps might be thinking about, um, say, the ways in which material resources, it would seem, in the cuts are being taken away from women. I mean, that, again, seems to create a defensive position, a, a, a position in which women have to defend what they are losing. And that would, that would seem to me the, the possible reality of what is, what is going to happen later on this year. Now, with that, you can do one of two things, it seems to me. You can say, look, please, we do not want this situation. We want to have what we have already. Or you can say, as well as saying that, look, why is our resources divided in this way? I mean, what I, was, I suppose I was concerned about was ways of enlarging um, debates and discussions so that this doesn't become a matter just of defending what you've lost, 
but also opening up possibilities of what you might have and discussing different ways of looking at the allocation of resources. I mean, it's about, I think it, it, it's not just about the resources that women might lose, but it's about resources throughout the state which are being lost. Yes, of course, there has to be a defensive reaction to the loss of those resources, but there's also perhaps some possibility, some space for a different kind of discussion of what is being lost and how is in that, what in that loss actually is never going to be able to be replaced or why is this particular loss taking place at this time. There are other questions, it seems to me, and there are other ways of using an imagination and the imagination of these particular instances which I've suggested, uh, which might actually just help to enlarge that debate. Because I think it's these acts, you see, which seem to me, and certainly in the case of Lisbeth Salander, to go beyond the defensive. I mean, she, certainly she defends herself and she defends her ways which are completely unknown to, to Jane Eyre and Fanny Price. I mean, you know, what she has as her resources are completely unknown um, in the 19th century. But at the same time, what she's also doing is actually thinking of ways of using those resources to put in place other structures, to put in place other possibilities that might occur. Um, it's, it's that kind of enlargement which interests me um, and which is what I wanted to find, if possible, um, in these sensational acts um, w which I defined in, in 19th century novels. Well, perhaps on that kind of both pessimistic and optimistic note is the, um, is the point at which we should bring this to a close. Um, before, before you join me in thanking Mary for this really interesting and sort of imaginative lecture, can I just extend an invitation to you to, uh, to join us at the Gender Institute for just a sort of informal... I don't know why we call it informal. What would a formal one be? Uh, informal drinks reception. Um, the, the Gender Institute is on the fifth floor of Columbia House, just, uh, just sort of two, three minutes walk from here. So you could just, if you don't know it, just follow everyone else uh, who's going there. Um, but before then, uh, can you just join me in, in thanking Professor Mary Evans for this very wonderful centennial.